Welcome to Kashmir on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashmir Magazine. And tonight's show, I think, will be very, very interesting to everybody. We're going to have a number of topics. I'm not sure we can finish them all, but at least this is what I'm, I'm not promising, but this is what we're trying to speak about. First is a, like a story that has happened today. And next, we're going to talk about three people who commented to me on the on the previous show, uh, actually previous two shows. One is talking about butchers. Another one wants to know about soda fountains. Another one uh, wanted to know about uh, the problem with the chickens, uh, the different broken bones, etc. that we talked about. And then we hope to go into, um, and, and, and in these, with the soda fountains, we're talking about cautious and dangers involved also. It's a, it's a very interesting topic. And then we're going to go on to... Um, the the uh, vegan restaurants again. There the certain hashkacha uh, trying to do a volunteer operation on vegan restaurants. Very interesting. And then we're going to go to discuss in Eretz Israel about the manpower situation where the rab- rabbinate is going to hire manpower organizations to run the mashkichim and that they wouldn't be paid anymore by their the bosses of the establishments they're working for. We're going to go into a little bit of hopefully about the Ethiopians and that problem which we had on the on that winery, the Barkin winery in Israel, and hope to go into a little bit about microbreweries, but that might time might not allow, and uh, I think there might be some surprises that I don't even know about that are going to happen tonight, because I was uh, warned a little bit that we're going to have maybe something else also. So let's see how it all goes together. I got to start with something that happened today because it never happened to me before. It's not about cautious of the foods, but it's about different kind of cautious. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people who invariably sees everything. So when I'm in shul, I, I see people's tefillin. And if it's not on properly, I always comment today to them. And, you know, it happens pretty regularly. I think today I did it twice. And uh, one that was just to tell somebody straight, not that Tefillin, uh, a good a f- good friend and Talmud of mine who I saw uh, where he needed a little adjustment. But the more important one was there was a boy, when I finished davening, there was a boy in the back, and I saw his Tefillin, and I said, you know, this this needs a little bit of adjustment. I gi- I'll give you half an inch, okay? So he said, fine. And I took the Tefillin, and I started to take it apart. But I looked at it. It looked very strange. It was very strange. I never saw it before in my life. It was very strange the way the knot was made. Now, I'm not a cipher, and I don't know even how to make a knot, but I know I've looked at hundreds of pairs of filling, and I never saw this. So <laughs> I said to him, you know, I, 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 I want to fix the filling. And by the way, it's not easy to fix filling. You have to take, sometimes you take a key out, and you use the key to, as a leverage to sort of pull the leather apart because the leather gets stuck together because of the uh, because of the sweat the person has when he's wearing his tefillin. Remember, it's on the head. And some people, there's a lot of that sweat, and it's, it's a long time, and it dries out in the summer. And you have a situation where you can almost never <laughs> can move that leather apart to adjust the the knot that ties the tefillin shalrosh, the head, the tefillin, the head tefillin. So there I am pulling away at this thing, and then I said to myself, you know, I, this is not the way I, this is not what I, I never saw one of these before. So I commented to the boy, I said, I, I think this is wrong. I said, you have to go to a, a cipher, do it today. 
Then I said to myself, you know, he's not going to run to the sofa today. They never do. <laughs> they say he will. They can't find a sofa. They're busy. You have to run to this place afterwards. Not going to make it over there. I said, I got to fix this kid's tefillin. So there I am, struggling away, trying to fix the tefillin. And I said, you know, I have to. And you have to say, you have to say a little, a little thing uh, when you fix somebody's tefillin. You have to say the shame mitzvahs tefillin. The shame kedushas. Then you start saying the shame kedushas tefillin because you're making the tefillin. Actually, making the knot is making the tefillin. Kshatim liyos liyadecha goes on making the knot, and some people make the knot every day. Okay, well, we don't make it every day, but the but the still in all, this is a real mitzvah, and I got to do it right. And I and I said to myself, you know, what's going to happen? And it was so scary to me because I never did this before. And what's going to happen if I open up the knot and I can't put it together again? <laughs> Here I am, taking the kids to fill in. He's not a kid, actually. He's a teenager boy, you know, and, and I, I'm taking maybe a 16 year old, and I'm taking it, maybe even 17, and I'm taking his to fill in apart. And, and what if I can't put him back together again? We're in trouble, you know. He'll never be able to wear again until he goes to the cipher, and I, I can't do that to somebody. So I was working on this thing so hard, and I finally fixed it. And then the, then the young fellow says to me, you know, he shows me the, another boy that's right next to him, his tefillin is the same as this boy had before. And that it's not the way I do it, which I've seen hundreds of times, but it's a different way. And he said to him, he said to me, he thinks that this is the minig of the group that he belongs to, a certain group of, of Jews, a certain kind of, type of Jew. He says he, he thinks that's the minig by them. So I said, oh my goodness, and now i got to take the whole thing and put it back together again. So I take the knot apart, and I put it together again, the way it was before, which is the way I never saw it in my life. And the two of them have the same pair of tefillin. I'm about ready to leave the building, and the, this young man gets up, and he goes over to somebody else in the shul who he wasn't sitting with. I don't, it's not his father or anything, but it's somebody else that he knows who's also from his brand of Types of Jews that we have. <laughs> so he shows it to fill into the man, and he says, This rabbi over here was trying to fix it to fill in, and, it, and he said it wasn't right. So the fellow told him, It isn't right. <laughs> the way you have it is wrong. So he said, But that's the way the Rosh Hashiva made it for me. Oh my goodness. I couldn't believe this. We had to fix it, both pairs of tefillin. We did it very quickly. I, I got out of shul, but it took well a few minutes. We had to fix both pairs of tefillin and give it back to these young men. And then on the way home, I started to think, the Rosh Hashiva is making this mistake, and he puts together tefillin for many of the boys in the yeshiva. I'm not going to discuss why, but he puts the tefillin together for many of the boys in the yeshiva. And if he's wrong... He's going to have to track them all down. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, listen, I, I said I'm not a cipher, but this is what I saw. This is what happened today. Rabbi, and, can I ask you and something? I only want to just say one little thing, and then I'll listen to this and I'll hear what this says today. I want to just say that, that people have to show their tefillin occasionally to somebody, and they have to examine them occasionally. The other boy's tefillin was definitely puzzle. 
<laughs> I told him you got to get to a sofa right away because it was it was it was almost like white like the snow. It's like the summertime now. There's no snow out there, and his tefillin didn't look black enough to pass for tefillin. So I told him there's no way you have to get to a sofa today. So it was one it was one amazing morning before breakfast. Go ahead. I just, no, I just want to ask you about <laughs> what, what was was the kesher of the of the, the kesher head? of the head was. It was it, it, I'll tell you what. No, no, it was it was the it was a single dollar. Yes. It's just that the the strap in the back goes inside. So you don't see, see the, the you don't see the backside of the uh, of, of the ritsua. Mm-hmm. It goes inside, so you, you only see the the black side yes. of the because you're supposed to see the black yes. side. He had it outside, oh. so I I, I I fixed it. Aside from giving me the half an inch, I gave him the half yeah. an inch. They looked beautiful afterwards. <laughs> he looked very he looked really ready to go. Looked like he's a bar mitzvah boy. He looked beautiful. But down was before it was down near his eyes. So I, I fixed his tefillin, but I I just saw. I said, my goodness, it's a sad thing. People I, don't give enough time to check that tefillin. I've, uh, I've changed know, I, so many tefillin over so the years. I, I tell you, this something tefillin is very big issue. Big issue. You know, that I saw feeling that people brought it from so-called sofer. And if you don't know the sofer personally, yeah. if you don't know, they don't purchase it. Right. Because it was, uh, you know, so many error stories. You know, something right. that right. you, you right. wouldn't believe. Right. You open that feeling, and then suddenly you see that a totally different feeling that what they sold you with a picture of, of the machon that checking it. I'm telling you, it's really? happened to me. It's happened to me a few times. It's, I, I, I'm telling you, I, I don't, today, unfortunately, I don't touch nobody unless I know the software, I know the dealer, and if it's open for my twins, I didn't close that fill-in until I brought it to my rabbi. Wow. And to this, until Very we checked nice. everything, and then because... I, I'm tell, I, I, what I saw in my life, it's really something that's crazy. Well, we don't have to make everybody no, nervous to no, no, open no, a tefillin today. I, I, would, I would say, I, would say I, I was nervous. But buying the tefillin, I sure. was nervous. Yeah. I was nevis. I saw. I saw it feeling that was checked up with a computer, with a, right. with, I, yeah, with a, with a, with a rabbi. This uh, and a very famous rabbi here, few times, and my rabbi just looked at the picture. Said that feeling absolute. We open it. We found, basically missing one word. After they passing three times mm. of you know check the, the annual inspection and and and. Computer, check it up. It's been checked it's, it's by been checked a software. By, by software, by a very famous software oh here. Oh, my goodness. No. And very famous software. And with a computer checkup, I was missing one letter. Wow. wow. And something that, so I tell you, we got scared, all of all, all the people in the shul. We start open the, the tearing out that feeling, the, the true. And we took it, basically, work by letter by letter, word by word. Just if something, you know, if... And then we go up. I uh, we went and to to close it to buy the software. Hmm. Well, let me just uh, mention something that I saw. Um, actually, my wife passed it over to me today from Project Witness. I thought it was a story that since we mentioned to fill in, we should uh, be mentioning this today as well. This was an interview from uh, Gita Lehrer, the daughter of Yaakov Galinsky, the famous of Yaakov Galinsky. Uh, about Messiris Nefesh for Tefillin in Siberia. They arrived in Siberia with Rav Yisrael Mafshowitz. There were about 100 Bacharim, cold minus 
60 degrees, horrific cold. The Soviet guard opened the gate of the camp for them. You'll have to do hard work labor here for 25 years, he said. Very difficult struggles trying to keep kosher, Messiris Nefesh. The Soviet guards gathered everything together. They gathered all the tefillin and everything and, and burnt them. Abba, meaning Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, was able to hide his tefillin and two other pairs. With incredible Messiris Nefesh, they had 20-minute breaks, crushing work. What would they do? They didn't go get a hot drink. They didn't go eat or sleep. They put on tefillin. Think about it. Exposing your arm fast. They had to rub them because it's freezing out there. Because they froze. To put them on quickly. There's a line for three sets of tefillin and you can't let the Soviet guards see you. To take them off immediately. That's what they had in their minds. Tefillin in Siberia. And we have it easy over here. How hard is it to, to properly put on tefillin? It's good. Occasionally, think about it. Take your tefillin to be checked occasionally. Not, I mean, weekly. I mean, you say you get every bunch of years. And, uh, and you know, daven well for it, that the tefillin should be kosher. Let me tell you some of the re- things that came up this week. It didn't, it was right after I spoke. And I got a, a, a contacted by a woman. I think she left a, m- a message on the answering machine. And she said, you know, I've talked a few times about butchers, and I've said that there are no more butchers in the New York. It's very un- uncommon to have a butcher today. And she told me that that's not really true because she knows that in the Hasidic world, they usually buy at butchers. They don't buy at supermarkets. And uh, the butchers that they have are, are real butchers. And uh, and then I started to think, that's what I'm buying also. But what I meant is something different. I didn't mean that there's no butcher stores that, that just sell meat. Of course there are butcher stores that just sell meat. They're not, you're not going in there to buy cups and, uh, you know, and, 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 and all kinds of nasherai. It's just paying a meat, a meat store. That's a butcher, right? No. That's not the butcher. That's today's butcher. The old butcher did the butchering. So this lady said to me, I mean, I didn't speak to her, but she left a message. She said, you can go in the back and ask for any cut you want. Yes, that's true. And you could do that in the fancy supermarkets here too in Brooklyn. You can tell them you want to have this cut and they'll cut it for you. They have plenty of meat there. That's not the point. The point is there's no more uh, salting and soaking and there's no more removal of the, the veins and uh, and the chalev, that's over with. It's it's all done in the main factories where they do the slaughterhouse and they prepare the meat over there and they send it out boxed or ready to go. Now it's true that you could uh, you know you can cut it up and you can cut it any way you want. You can get different cuts. Yes, the cuts you can get, and you can maybe get a whole chicken too. But you if whatever you want to get, you probably can get. But that doesn't mean it's a butcher store. A real butcher knew meat, and these people don't know meat. And I told the story here about this, a certain city, I'm not telling you where, that they, that they, uh, a gentleman was taken out there to look over the whole kashras of the city, and he said, he walked into the, super, into the butcher store, and he said, oh, I see you like to eat chalev in this town. 
Chalev? Chalev is a forbidden fat. What do you mean? I like to eat Chalev in this town. He said, well, this is Chalev. And they said, what are you talking about? It's a, it was a liver. And he, he, he said, that on top of the liver is Chalev. And he said, what are you talking about? You know where we got this from? And he named the name of a famous uh, Shrita. And they sent the meat directly from there. What could be wrong? How could you have Chalev on it? And he, and he said, and, and it came out that yes, they were sending with the chalav attached. You could buy it without the chalav, but in general, they sent with the chalav attached because they thought that all the butchers knew that you have to remove chalav. And in this town, a very sizable town, big hashkocha, you know, a chashivavad in, in America. Okay, chashivavad in America, big town. The the butcher didn't know it was chalav. The mashgiach and the rav hamachshir to come into the store, did not know it was chalav. Yes, people don't know meat anymore. And therefore, things can get delivered even to the best butchers, and it will not necessarily be properly cleaned up afterwards. We're relying totally, or pretty totally, on the big shechitas uh, and how they process the meat before it leaves there. Yeah, there might be some butchers left who know meat, and there might be some butchers who actually check the meat when it comes in. But I know for a fact in one store where they have a, a very high volume of meat, very high volume of meat, that the man himself doesn't know anything about meat. And even if he did, it won't help because all the workers are not Jewish. None of the workers in the meat department are Jewish. And this man is running all over the store. So there's no way in the world that you could tell me that the meat that came in is being watched on the on the store level. It's being processed in the main plant. That was the point that I was trying to make, and I hope the woman is not upset by my answer, but I, I shop in the same stores, and so, you know, I'm, we may even meet, although I don't know who you are. <laughs> I just want to tell you that yeah. about this, uh, I know that quite a few now, on the last few months, a, a, a group of Avrechim, yeah. Basically, they they doing the own shechita and taking care of this. Very nice, yes, very nice. There's always been that. That's a, that's going on forever. Yeah. But uh, it's not a simple thing to arrange. And I don't think you'd be able to go to any simchas. Okay. Now, uh, <laughs> the next true. thing I want to want to mention is about soda fountains. We were talking. We mentioned Seven Eleven. So somebody said to me, I I didn't mention about the soda fountains. He came up to me right after mincha. And he said, oh, someday he came over, maybe Shachas, I don't know, came over to me and said, you didn't mention about soda fountains. So, okay, we probably talked about it a bunch of times, but I'll mention that briefly today. So I looked into soda fountains. First of all, I've always quoted a, a, a story that somebody told me when he came to my house for Shabbos meal, that he, he's in the food business and he was told by somebody who uh, services the machines that you put the, the quarter in, maybe it's now a dollar in, in and you, uh, maybe it's dollar fifty, whatever it is, the old machines that you put in and the, the cup came down and this, the soda came down and the syrup came down. And he was told by one of the people who was servicing the machine for a national company, I don't know which company it was, he said that people cheat and they buy cheaper products and that nobody knows the difference. 
He said, because if it's cold and it's wet, nobody knows the difference. So I'm going to read to you from a few documents, but I also want you to know that there's a base in soda fountains, there's very strong concern for health issues. Very strong concern. I don't want to, this is a, an evening hour, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to give you the real scary stuff that I read, but I can tell you if you want real scary things, read about soda fountains. Very interesting material. But I am going to read part of it, because that's what we got to do. So we'll, we'll mention uh, this one over here. It seems that there was a, um, a, a study in the International Journal of Food Microbiology. And they mentioned that nearly half of the 90 beverages from soda fountain machines in one area in Virginia tested positive for coliform bacteria, which could indicate some... I'm not going to discuss what kind of source it came from, but this... Uh, a very disturbing kind of uh, uh, contamination that may have caused this uh, this coliform bacteria. So he says uh, he says uh, the, they, the the lead uh, author of the study, who is a professor of biology and environmental studies in Hollins University, a liberal arts college in Roanoke, Virginia, said. Certainly, we come in contact with bacteria all the time. It's simply that some bacteria may potentially cause some disease or gastrointestinal distress. In the, according to the research literature, one study linked a 1998 outbreak to soda fountains after 99 soldiers in the U.S. Army base were hospitalized after with gastro. Enteritis. In other words, they said it came from the soda fountain. So there you go. Now, uh, they also eliminated that ice was the cause. Now, it's something that in the soda fountain itself, it isn't properly cleaned or whatever it is. I can't tell you how it gets in, but it definitely was a, a serious issue. In that case that we were just talking about, 48% of the beverages obtained from the soda fountains had this coliform bacteria. 11% had E. coli. That's on the top of, the, I wonder if that's in addition or on top of the 48%. And the 17% had something that I can't read. <laughs> it says, Chrysiobacterium meningosepticum. So if I read it wrong, don't, don't you please forgive me. Which could sicken newborns or adults with weakened immune system. So this is real stuff. People said, oh, maybe it's a localized study. I didn't follow up and see how many other studies there were. You can do your own experimentation about it by, by seeing it. But it's definitely something uh, that's a little scary. And now I want to tell you a little bit about the, uh, the substitute thing, that people substitute. I'm going to read to you from an article. It says, the threat of substitutes. There's a medium to high pressure from from substitutes in the beverage industry. In other words, the Coca-Cola company and the Pepsi and all these uh, special companies, they have a pressure. As a product, most people cannot differentiate the taste from other similar cola products. Bingo! 
That's exactly what I told you in the beginning that this fellow told me when he came to my house. He said that they told him in the industry that you cannot identify. Now you tell me, I know I've been drinking Coca-Cola since I was a kid. I want to tell you two quick things about that. Yes, you were drinking Coca-Cola since you were a kid, and you know the difference between Pepsi and Coke. But the soda fountain tastes different than the than the than the than what comes out of the bottle or the can. It doesn't taste the same. And here's an interesting thing that I saw, which I thought was amazing. They said, "Please don't go out and buy anything based on this." They said the best Coke is at McDonald's. It tastes completely different from other people's Coke. Now, how could that be? And they have a long list of reasons why McDonald's Coca-Cola, we're talking about from the soda machine, tastes completely different from everybody else's. So obviously, if they're the best cola, Coca-Cola, and you know when you've been drinking Coca-Cola since you were a kid, every can and every bottle of Coca-Cola tasted the same to you. So how come this beats out that one? Because when you're talking about soda fountains, it's not the same bird as a can or a bottle of Coca-Cola. So therefore, you, you, you're, not, you're not sure you're getting Coca-Cola, even though it says Coca-Cola. And the people save a lot of money by not giving you Coca-Cola. If you study the, I studied the little, a little bit this industry. It was very, very interesting. The whole thing is to, is to you know, cheat you a little bit and give you a little less uh, syrup and a little more water because the company is caught charging a fortune for that syrup. So it, the whole business is to squeeze a little more out. So they're playing games from beginning to end, and you are not being protected. So therefore, I, when, I know when the Kuf K was giving Ashkoch on the 7-Elevens, on two of 7-Elevens for a while, they're not doing it anymore in our neighborhood. And at, at that time, the the uh, the K, you know, said this one, we're doing the soda fountain, and this one, we're not doing the soda fountain. So you see that they couldn't monitor it. And they thought it was very important to say we're not going to accept the soda fountain in there, even though they're paying the money. So... It, you know, it is or it isn't. We can't go ahead and say, what could be wrong? Please, it could be wrong. And uh, if you, and here we're relying totally on a non-Jew who, I mean, you know, doesn't, is not like us at all. They're not religious. They're not uh, our people. They're not uh, whatever. And you're going to rely on them telling you, oh, yeah, this is Coke. Yeah, I saw it myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not my choice. No, I had a, just one second. I had, I had a, I'll get into this one second. I, I had a I had a person call me today. I can't believe it, and I'm not sure if he was just playing a game with me. I have people who do that, but I I just didn't know. He called up and asked about a certain restaurant in Manhattan, and this restaurant in Manhattan, he said has a certain hashgacha. I didn't even know it had hashgacha. I looked once recently on the website there, and I didn't see any hashgacha. But let's say it has that hashgacha. So I told him it's open Shabbos and there's no mashkiach there. Because I know the, the, the Hashkocha never has a mashkiach and all the stores are open on Shabbos. So I knew it was that. So he says, so what? Maybe you can have a mechira. For the, maybe he sold it, you know, for Shabbos. I said, I'm telling you that you can go ahead right now and you will see the owner of this restaurant, which is vegetarian, officially no trafe in there. I don't know if there is or isn't, but I mean, there's officially no trafe in there. That vegetarian restaurant, the owner is a principal in a trafe restaurant 
an Israeli tray for restaurant in Manhattan. He he works together with the other man. So he says, so what? Well, <laughs> first of all, so what? He's not religious at all. And, and, and he doesn't care about kosher because he's dealing with treif. And he can go ahead and take something from that place and take it into his place. He's not even religious. And he, and there's no mashkiach there. And certainly no mashkiach on Shabbos. And there's no mashkiach anyway. So what's going to prevent him from substituting kosher for non-kosher, non-kosher for kosher? So he says, well, that's your opinion. I said, listen, you can call whoever you want, decide who you want. I can't make a decision for you. If you're happy that way, people are really not ready to buy into basic kosher. There are so many people that will fight you tooth and nail. No matter what you show them, they'll tell you that what could be maybe it's because it's near my house. I want to go there. Please don't bother me, Rabbi. <laughs> then why'd you call me? So I, I said to him, you can find somebody who understands you better and etc. So he said, thank you. I, I appreciate your sense of humor and your not lightheadedness. And but but he, I couldn't get the guy to understand because he didn't want it. It, did, it didn't fit in with what he wanted. So he was looking for uh, uh, my approval, and I just couldn't give it to him. My goodness, a, non, a, a non-religious person who's active in a non-kosher establishment and could easily take from one to the other, and, you, and you're saying, oh, alumnus, maybe he sold his store for Shabbos? <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. What do you want to say, Nisa? No, I want, first of all, about the fountain that I know personally that I saw that you have the generic uh, syrup. Right. That it's a fraction of the fraction price. Of the uh, fr- fraction, uh, fr- of course. Fraction, of course. And beside this, you know, when you put you the uh, half of cup of uh, ice, you cannot test the real Coca-Cola. Right. You, it's, it's no way that it, you're going. It, you know, it's freezing your tongue. It's freezing. Uh, and it's diluted also, the, the, the syrup over right, there. Right. So this is one of the tricks. You know, you fill it full of ice, and you put a little bit of uh, syrup, and that's it. You don't, you don't anymore. Right. About this issue, about the, the we face it every day. Every day we face it that people want to do what to get a rubber stamp, let's say this. Right. A rubber stamp, you know, it's okay. I, if this rabbi said it's okay, I don't look more than this, and I don't care about it. And, and unfortunately, I spoke about Sudash Lishit in our show about that That I, I knew personally a person that used to come to our, our um, uh, community, and he decided he's going to take any rabbi that make a kalot. If the Rambam said it's okay to go in the Shabbat and do this, he will go. If this rabbi will do, <laughs> they take all the rabbanim, all the kalot of rabbanim, make it to his own Shulchan Aruch. And I tell you, I, I, I walk in the street, uh, uh, not this Shabbat, last Shabbat, and I saw him in the street. And I really, I didn't see difference between him and a goy, unfortunately. Really. It's like, so, no more Shabbat, no more is his family that like evaporate because they break all the fences of the world that the Chachamim gave us to us. And he just like it was, you know, in the beginning that take a kala on this, a kala on this, and in the end, what happened? I don't think his children, and none of the children keep Shabbat. And very sad, very, very sad. I have a question now. Okay, I don't know if you finish. Well, well, before you go on to the question, I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna continue on a little bit on the, the line that you started. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm switching my order over here for you. <laughs> okay. No. 
there's a there's a there's this That's problem a that, life, life <laughs> there's a problem we were talking about and that happened in Israel and you know i i hope it's not not going to upset anybody because we we talked about it briefly before i want to just go into it slightly and i think it and it ties into what you just mentioned and that that is the uh that that's the situation in Israel in the barkin of winery where the Eid HaKaredes took over giving Hashkocha, and they were brought in. They were brought in a year ago, and uh, you know the, the company wanted that, that Hashkocha, and uh, there was another rabbi who was on it before. The rabbi is from the United States in a city called New York City in a borough of Brooklyn, uh, very close to where we are. And the rabbi who was on the Hashkocha, I'm not sure if he's still there. He could be still there, still on the product. And he had, I, at that time, I think the Ethiopians were working there too. I wrote him an email. I haven't heard back from him. I asked him, were the Ethiopians there before? What's the story? I'm trying to find out. But I didn't receive an answer. Uh, I used his email address, and we didn't get an answer. But the question is, you know, what it, what, what's going on over there? So I don't want to get, I'm getting in trouble with my friend Nisim over it because, uh, you know, Chacham Vadi Yosef was held that they were kosher as, uh, as Jews. And the Ada is taking the other opinion. So there is a Jew. He's uh, an interesting person. Uh, he's the founder and dean of a certain academy and, uh, and, and a certain base medrash. And uh, an interesting gentleman, and he feels that we have to do away with the din of <laughs> with the din of uh, stamienum, because he thinks the stamienum was is a, a mistaken chumra uh, that we have, and he wants to do away with it. He himself is a balchuva, which is fine, and uh, he actually was from a mixed marriage, which is okay, you know, where he came Jewish from everything like that. But unfortunately, this man wants to do away with the din of Stam Yenam. Stam Yenam is that we can't use wine that a non-observant Jew touched. Now, touching isn't the way you think of it. It's not touching the bottle. It's shaking it's sticking your finger in. It's pouring. It has to be a significant thing. And in the process of working on the wine in the factories, they invariably do move the wine. Uh, they, 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 certain things are done mechanically, and certain things are done by hand. And it's very easy for them to affect the flow of the wine, which is considered to be a problem if a non observant Jew touches the wine, or a non-Jew, let's say, a non-Jew touches the wine, or moves the wine. So the problem comes up about what we call stam yenam. In the good old days, and I say good old days, I'm not, I'm not kidding, Jews were very religious, and Goyim were also very religious. In the old days, everything the non-Jew did, he did it for his avodah zorah. He was so close to his Avodah Zorah. And you don't have to go back 500 years to see this. You could still see it today. Take a trip to Pennsylvania, to the Amish country. Speak to those people over there. I did, of course, a bunch of years ago. But okay, but I did do it. And I did see 
that they're very sincere. And I've spoken to some non-Jewish people over the years who are very sincere with their religion. And in the good old days, they used to, before they broke bread together, they made a blessing on the, on the bread. They did it religiously on a daily basis. They made blessings. And they, and they read the Bible. And they did everything for their Avodah Zorah. And that's why the Gemara says you can't give them gifts before their holidays. you got to be careful because you're sort of helping them. They're going to say, oh, their God is really uh, a true God. Because look what he made the Jew do today. <laughs> you know, look what he made me do for me. So they, yes, they lived for their Avodah Zorah. Today, you know, if they visit the Avodah Zorah once a week, it's, uh, they're very, they think they're big tzaddikim. But they, they, in the good old days, they were real goyim. And we were real yidden. And that's the, that in the, in the good old days, I still remember when I was in Eretz Israel in the, in the 1960s, I still see, remember seeing, uh, Sephardic ladies sitting near a Sephardic shul all day, hours and hours and hours just saying to Hillel. For hours and hours and hours. Today, who has the time? That she has the job, she's doing this, she's cooking, baking, this, blah, 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 blah. She never get a chance to get, who's ever going to have the chance to sit there for two, three, four hours and maybe more a day with a, with a little tahil outside the show, not even in the show. And it's, it's a, you know, a, and the men used to say tahilim zago, but, 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 but he zog tahilim with a little, with a little life to him. He's not just reading words that he doesn't know. He zog tahilim that he knew. And, and it was a whole different amuna. So that's the way it used to be. And, and by the Goyim, it was that way. And hundreds of years ago, there was a Vodazar, and there was, real, there was real commitment to it. By the time of the Shulchan Aruch, Moshe Isolis said that we no longer have a real Vodazar. People today that claim they're doing a Vodazar or something are just minig avoseim biadeim. They're just play-acting. They're making believe that they're really doing a vodazar, but it's not a vodazar anymore because they're not they're not into it. They're just not really up to that level to commit to the vodazar the way they used to. So this Jew came along. I'm not going to mention his name, and I want to get in. And I want to get into a whole discussion about it. And he says, "Do away with this. It's a throwback." He calls it an interesting thing. Uh, I don't know if I underlined it. But he calls it um, the Gezeira as something that's, uh, what was his words? Yeah, I have it right here. He, 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 call, he calls it, um, I don't have it in front of me, but, he, but, what, he's, but he, what he's calling it is, yeah, he, he said defensive law. He considered a defensive law. They were fr- the outcome of strange circumstances while the Jews lived in exile in earlier centuries. And he doesn't. He thinks idol worship disappeared and therefore there shouldn't be a problem anymore. But the Rav Osher, Isolis says there's no more Rav Odezara, and he still says we have the law. And there's a big machlaikas of whether, whether Stam Yenam, this kind of wine that the non-Jew touched or a non-religious Jew touched, it, it is forbidden to have any pleasure from. Or it's only... A regular kind of an Esau, or it's the super Esau, like a vote, like like Yainesach was. It's a big question in halacha, and uh, about whether or not it, it could asa everything, and 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 it will never be bottled. It's a, it's a very very big question in halacha. So I I uh, I I, I want to just m- mention briefly 
what the old machlokas was, what the whole situation was. So I'm going to read to you from something that was written by one of the very fine rabbis at the OU, but I'm leaving his name off because I don't want to identify the other person. Okay. Although Rabbi Adi Yosef ruled that members of Beta Yisrael, Beta Yisrael, the Ethiopians, are definitely Jewish, a ruling strongly promoted by his son, the current Sephardic chief rabbi, and that's why he's very angry with the Eid HaRedes, because he feels the Eid HaRedes is not going like his father, Paskind. Most halachic authorities, including, listen to the list, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, Rav Menachem Man Shach, and Rav Yosef Sholom Elyashev, disagreed. They didn't go with Rav, with Rav, with Rav, with Rav uh, Yosef. Furthermore, genetic testing does not indicate any serious link between Beta Yisrael and the rest of world Jewry. That's a very significant thing because today that that beta te- that testing, the, the the genetic testing is something that they they're using to prove who's a Kohen, etc. It's a very interesting thing. I'm not saying it's you have to rely on it, but that was an interesting question they're raising here. And many major historians do not accept that Beta Yisrael have Jewish roots. The great Religious dissimilarities between Beit Yisrael and the rest of world Jewry further militate against Beit Yisrael's claim of Jewish origin. Whereas the native Jews from regions east of the land of Israel, who inhabited those regions, regions since the exile of the First Temple era, have texts and observances nearly identical with those of the rest of world Jewry. Beit Yisrael's texts and observances claim to be from not from not too much earlier, are vastly different. In other words, we don't have a strong enough link. I'm not going to take away from Rabbi Yosef, who was an outstanding Tamil Chacham, but it seems that most of the other Rabbanim did not go with him. And the Edahar Haredes, which is now being maligned in Israel uh, by the left and the this and the that, and that they're that they're that they're you know disrespectful to these people that are racist, and that because they don't want them to be working on the on the wine, it's definitely something that's that's not uh, founded, and there's definitely a reason why they're not accepting them as Jews, and they ask them nicely to move to work in a different section, not to leave, but to work in a different section of the plant, not where they come directly in contact with the wine, which is. You know, again, there. I'm going to read from another article, and then I'll, we'll hear whatever we're, whatever else we're going to do today. But let me read a little bit from another article. That was this one. Um, here was it. Somehow I I misplaced that one. It's, it's hiding around here, but there is a there is a um, another article that I have. It must be oh here it is. In 1973, Rabbi Avad Yosef, then the chief Sephardic rabbi, based on the Radvaz and other accounts, ruled that the Beit Yisrael were Jews and should be brought to Israel. He was later joined by a number of other authorities who made similar rulings, including the chief Ashkenazi rabbi Rabbi Shlomo Gorin. So Rabbi Gorin and Rabbi Yovad Yosef were on one side. Some notable poskim, if 
from non-Zionist Ashkenazi circles placed a suffix over the Jewish peoplehood of the Beit Yisrael. Such dissenting voices included Rav Shach, Rav Yosef Shalom Yoshev, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, and Rav Moshe Feinstein. Similar doubts were raised within the same circles toward the B'nai Yisrael and to Russian immigrants to Israel during the 1990s post-Soviet Aliyah. In the 1970s and early 80s, the Beit Yisrael were required to undergo a modified conversion ceremony involving immersion in the mikveh, a declaration accepting rabbinic law, and for men, a symbolic recircumcision. Chief Rabbi Avram Shapiro later waived the symbolic recircumcision demand, which is only required when halachic doubt is significant. So they definitely were not producing the uh, the, the hatafas dambris, or, or you know, you know. So they they weren't doing that, which is required if you have a real question about whether the person is Jewish. With the consent of Rabbi Avadi Yosef, Rabbi Amar, that's the other Sephard, later Sephardic rabbi, ruled that it's forbidden to question the Jewishness of this community pejoratively called Falash Mura in reference to their having converted. So the position is, you know, it's accepted and that's it. But obviously it never was accepted, as the other poets can have said. So this is an unfortunate part of our, of our past where we couldn't work together on it. It's sad, very sad. I always felt it was very sad uh, that, that we couldn't come together on it. And I, and I always knew it was going to erupt, and it had definitely erupted many times in the past. Unfortunately, now it makes it look like Ada Haredes is being too from, when in fact they're just following what all their poiskim said all the years. It's sad, and it, and it definitely something should change. Hopefully, we'll find a simple solution without making everybody upset. Nisim, you had something else? Yeah, I want to talk about something that I wish I really would get some response from Kashrus uh, Agency. First of all, I understand that Russia requires some cameras on the in the premises right, right, right now. Right, right, right now, yeah. And uh, this is okay. And I think that most of the uh, st- restaurant owner accept it and get it. It's not not the problem. The problem is like this. Uh, I, I I know I know quite a few restaurant owners that basically that in the last I would say twenty years, the same cashew agency, the same everything, and pay the day and the time. But unfortunately, in the, the last few months, the business is very, very weak. And I'm talking about that they're barely making, the, they don't even make the rent. And then when they approach to the, to the agency, you know, it's, you know, I'm not talking about the, only the cash route agency. I'm talking about even, even as, a, as, a, as a Jewish people. And I said, listen. Maybe you can help us give up, you know, part of this. And it's not, and I'm not talking about a one that you know that is late in the payment or all this stuff. The guy that's really sincere, that he's really going to lose his business. And it seems like the cash routes agencies don't care about it. Oh, then we don't know that. We don't know, uh, we don't I, know the I, you details. Know, no, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the one per person or two person. And also the second, the, the burden of putting a cameras in a, in, a, in a restaurant, it's a big money. It's also issue. Who is going to pay how, this? How, how, how big is it? 
What? I, with those, I, the little cameras that I've seen, they run $150. No, no, no. It's not like this. No, no. You have to put quite a few cameras. Right, they want a lot of have, cameras. And yeah. you have to put it a special HD camera, and you have to, to connect it to the internet, and you have to connect to the server. And it's it, uh, it, it's not so simple. And the cash flow agency get it all the access code. That's what it's fine for the, 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 the owner. But it's it's reach a point in the point that the owner said to me, and he's a Haredi person and very wow. religious. Okay, I hear it. He wants to do it without Hashka. No, he said he said, you know what? Listen, it's reach a point that I I, I, I don't I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. It's like it's like somebody sitting on on my throat, and I said I cried to the to the Ashgaha. Listen, give me a break, maybe a month, maybe two months, just to that go over this, you know, point. I don't get it. I don't get it. I can stay without Ashgaha because people knows me. People can, I can, I don't, you know, I can continue without this. I don't want it to do it. And it's something I, I, very, I don't very. Know we, don't, we don't know all the details here, but yeah, let, yeah, no. Let, but let, that's let me, why I want to get the response. Okay, let, let, let me try first to, to put it in perspective. Uh, I know what the what the, the hashgachas charge over here for their hashgacha. It is not a lot of money, but the but the but the, they have a mashkiach, so that 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 has to be paid somehow. The question is how many how many hours that mashkiach is there. A lot of the kashrus agencies I know for a fact have cut back on the number of hours of the mashkiach because specifically because of what you're saying that the 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 regist- the restaurant tours had come to the mashkiach and said I can't handle it and the mashkiach was willing to lessen the amount of hours that some people come there that is what I know is for a fact is being done the person that, or people that you're you're talking about maybe are under a different mashkiach and maybe that the one that they work with is not willing to work with them. As far as the cameras, what I would have said, and this is a really a good suggestion I'm giving now, it, it's based on everything I'm seeing, it would probably work for the, if it's, I don't know how much dollars are involved. Let's say it's $5,000 instead of the few hundred that I thought it cost. So let's say it costs $5,000 for the, for the equipment and they're telling him, we have to have the equipment in, in two weeks. So I would say it's time to go to a, to a company. And if you need to start it up, B&H will start it up for you. I'm serious. They'll find somebody to do it for you. You have a, just like everything else, you, rent, you, you, don't, you don't own your car, you lease it. You, uh, the burglar alarm system in the house, you lease it. You pay a monthly charge of $29 or something. And maybe I'm making it up. Maybe it's fifty nine dollars. I don't know. But whatever it is, you could be, you could do something in a way in which it wouldn't hurt them. And and the, and a cashless agency that is dealing with fifty establishments in the neighborhood, which is what they have. Some of them have more, some are less. But let's say fifty establishments in the neighborhood. They want them all to have cameras. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. A company. But would be willing to set the whole thing up, own the equipment, and get paid the twenty nine dollars a month, and there would no one would be hurt by it. And then if they ever decide to change, to drop the or to give up, to do that, they take back the equipment and it's all over. And I think that that would be a solution for the outlay 
of that. That's of a that good. Uh, as long as the Ashgachah is taking, like, uh, could be the Ashgachah make it? Like, the, the, like in Israel, you're talking about the, the main power. Main power, company. right. Same kind of the thing. Good, it's a good, same kind of uh, idea. Right. That's a good idea. I know. It's an idea, you know. It's uh, but it's really something that I. I no, but I it's very say. easy to do. If if you if you'll tell me after the show, Bli Nether, I can present it to some of the Kashrut agencies. Okay, no, okay. This, this is definitely, so that's you know, that's a simple solution to that one. Because, uh, but as, as but as the I, thing about the hurting is real. You know, uh, President Trump talks about how we're improving the economy, but it's it, on the economy for some people is unbelievable. They're making money like crazy. But at the same time, some people are losing everything, and uh, a, a lot of times it's the small men. I deal with the in the industry of the printing and publishing industry for the magazine, for Conscious Magazine, and they're telling me now that some places are going to go under because of the cost of because of the cost of paper. It's going sky high because of the tariffs that he's putting on. So some company, big companies, are going to go on. The, you'll always have cars. Everything's going to go on. But some people on the side are going to lose their business. That's just going to happen. Yeah, that's, that's no that, question. We only have a few minutes left. I yeah. want to just sneak okay. a couple yes, of things so underneath okay. underneath the, the radar here, at least two things I want to sneak in here. One was this interesting situation, which I've mentioned before, but I just saw an unbelievable article about it. This is a free ashkocha. <laughs> this is what you're talking about. This, this is it. Here's the free ashkocha. It's vegan restaurants. I'm not going to tell you where it is. And we had this discussion before. What this person is giving a number of vegan restaurants. And he takes the vegan restaurants because he considers them very easy to do. And basically, he thinks everything's really okay. Take out the wines, a little here, a little there. Basically, nothing has to be done. So he's giving. It sounds like a free ashkocha. I'm, I'm not making this up. And I know another person who I think also is giving a free ashkocha. So that's, the, the, unfortunately, that might be the way for the future. Listen to what it says over here. Typically, supervising a kosher kitchen is a paid position. But this organization relies on volunteers to keep things in order. As a result, restaurants don't have to sign on for any financial commitment to get kosher, unlike with most other certification programs. Sounds like there's no payment. But listen to what they have. They have volunteer mashkichim, or mashkichot in this case. At least for now, this is done on a volunteer-based system. It helps that there's only a handful of restaurants so far and that they're vegan or vegetarian. This woman says that she visits, listen to this, she visits the location once a week and says it's usually a short visit. So you get what you pay for. You get a volunteer to come in once a week for a short visit. And that's what you do for a restaurant. Well, it, that would be a solution, Nissan, but I hope we don't get it over here. It's very hard. This is a quote now. It's very hard for them to do anything wrong since all the ingredients that are coming in are mostly just packed stuff. She says, when I go, all I have to do is check the vegetables, make sure there are no menu options, new, new menu options, and just make sure that the operation is running as it was before. So she's in and out of there. I didn't ask her how fast but I guess that she gets on to her next volunteer place very quickly. 
Now, uh, one more thing before basically uh, ending off here. Uh, maybe I have two, but it was, this is about the manpower in Israel. So in Israel, now I know for a fact that at least at one time, I have to check the whole thing. I'm trying to put together an article. It, it was a, a, in, in Canada, uh, in Montreal, supposedly the Hashgacha pays all the Mashgichim. They don't get paid by the establishments. It's a rare thing, but that's what it is. Maybe it's done elsewhere that I don't know about. But in Israel, in Petach Tikva, the whole city took on to do that, to create a manpower, uh, to, to hire a manpower program, manpower or company, to hire mashgichim and pay them the wages, and they were, they were negotiating directly with the, uh, with the stores. So the store has to have a mashgiach. They have to go to a manpower company. Manpower supplies the mashgiach, which is, of course, approved by the hashkocha. But all the dollars goes to the manpower and to the mashgiach. It doesn't go, it doesn't, the, the monies that are paid to the hashkocha agency are direct and, and not mixed into this thing with the mashgiach. And the mashgiach is being taken care of by the manpower or else they're going to, they have to replace him. And if they don't replace him, then they looped off the hashkocha. So now here's what um, what's happening. This just happened like a week ago. Just as the government is about to inform the High Court of Justice that it failed to find a solution to the state kashra system, the cabinet came up that they're going to approve the recommendations of the chief rabbinate of Israel. This is what they said. Following the decision of the chief rabbinate council, to separate the relationship between a mashkiach and a business being supervised, a demand made by the high court just a year ago, the government has yet to make a decision to promote the amendment to the legislation. But the point is that the the chief rabbinate has said, we're going to go with this idea of using a manpower agency. We are no longer going to have the person that is being supervised pay the mashkiach directly. And this way, we we know that, and not they're going to pay the hashkocha for him. They're going to pay through a manpower. And this way, we know that the mashkiach is honest, that he's not being influenced and pressured by the person that he's certifying. So they're going to use a manpower agency. The new regulation is going to be the manpower agency to prevent the religious councils from having to pay social benefits. So this way, they're cheating the mashkiach, but at least... We are at least we're going to be protecting that the hashkoch will be honest. Unfortunately, the loser in this case is the mashgiach, but that's what's happening in the land of Israel. So that's a, that's what I have for today. And uh, just to remind everybody, if you'd like to contact us, our telephone number is seven one eight three three six eight five four four seven one eight three three six eight five four four or Kashrus K A S H R U S at AOL dot com and let us know what you want us to discuss, what some of your feedback. Always would like to hear from you. And um, as well if you're interested in getting Kashrus magazine, our kosher travel guide to the three hundred and sixty communities across the United States in all fifty states. We have we have everything you need to know to go traveling.
That's it. That's what we have. The 154-page book. You can get it right away. Just let us know. 718-336-8544. You can also get it on Amazon.com. You can get it on CautiousMagazine.com or call us at 718-336-8544. Or else, if you'd like to get the magazine coming regularly, you can sign up for a subscription. And you should know that in September, we're printing a 224-page book to the one to the one thousand four hundred and twenty seven cautious agencies worldwide, and that's the our newest kosher supervision guide. And uh, you really shouldn't uh, live at, live at home without it. <laughs> so thank you for listening to Cautious on the Air. This is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Cautious Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.